Valley of Megiddo. And so we were there having lunch. It was a beautiful day, uh, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, but for whatever reason, um, there were a lot of jets, uh, fighter jets in the air. We saw seven fly overhead. And, and then for the rest of the day, we couldn't see them, but we could hear them all day constantly. So I, you know, jokingly put a, a post on Facebook saying, you know, casual lunch at Armageddon with the gentle hum of jet fighters uh, in the air, uh, only to get home to see the news that night and realize that there was a Russian jet shot down by Turkey that day. Uh, and uh, and Iranian jets had uh, also been flying in Syria just off the border of Israel, and that Russian jets had also come into Israeli airspace as well. So nothing to be worried about. It was fine. You know, it's, uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. That was nowhere near as dangerous as, as me nearly being kidnapped. That was probably more something to be worried about. Uh, we're at the uh, pool of Bethesda uh, where, where Jesus healed uh, the blind man, uh, the, the lame man, sorry, I should say. And uh, the, you got the pool. It's an actual pool there outside the gates of uh, Jerusalem, outside the city walls in the city of David. And uh, there is also a, a channel that was built by King Hezekiah uh, in 700 BC. And so we're at the pool, and then the tour group went off to where King Hezekiah had built the channel and the, and the water source. I stayed taking some photos at the pool, and everyone else had gone off. And by the time I'd gone to go get my tour group, I, I didn't quite see where they went. So I went, there was, there was, over this side, there was two options. There was you could go underground or you could go up the stairs. And this was only like day one or day two. So like I couldn't 100% recognize everybody on my tour by that stage. And there was an old guy at the top of the stairs. Uh, he was saying, come up here. And I'm like, oh, there we go. There's my tour group. So I went up the stairs. And halfway up the stairs, I realized... This guy doesn't look that familiar, actually. I'm not sure if this guy is part of the tour or not. And I'm getting further up the stairs. And uh, up the, towards the top, I realized, no, this guy's got nothing to do with this tour. <laughs> I think I'm about to walk into danger. And uh, so I, I get to the top of the stairs. I'm still trusting at this stage because I think I can take him. He's only about 80. And uh, I start, <laughs> I think anyway, <laughs> not sure. I peer around the corner into what appears to be a plethora of dark alleys and shanties, and that's when I pulled the pin. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I hear my tour group calling, <laughs> and I ran down. Uh, he, apparently, he wanted me to go into his house for tea, and he said, don't worry, it's safe, it's safe, come to my house for tea. I'm like, no, I hear my tour guide calling, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm walking down the stairs thinking I just avoided being a news story um, or, having a, or getting the Australian consulate involved, so... Apart from those small mishaps, 100% safe, make sure you get to Israel. Uh, but honestly, it was, an, it was an amazing place. Uh, we'll get cracking, though. We're going to get straight into the Word today. It's great to be back. Uh, let me say that. A month away, it's great to be back amongst our family and friends. I, mi I miss Australia. I love Australia. It's 100% it's, uh, good to be home. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, which is, uh, which is a famous sermon by Jesus. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, usually when I preach, you know, I, I, I like to preach, you know, from, you know, uh, really obscure passages that nobody's heard of because it makes you look better as a preacher, makes it look like you've studied. And, you know, I like to preach from, you know, Hezekiah or some, you know, book of the Bible like that. Uh, but I'm going to go cliche today, if that's okay. I'm, I'm just going to go Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's vanilla ice cream, I know, but we're, we're going to shoot for it. Uh, not that I want to call Jesus preaching vanilla ice cream, but it's... Uh, it, it's, no, it's nothing fancy, it's, it's pretty basic, you'll all know this story, you'll all, it's just after the Beatitudes, as a matter of fact, most scholars say that this is like the, the summation or the epilogue of the Beatitudes, and, and this is what he says, he says, 
You, speaking to believers in the kingdom, both Jewish and Gentile, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill. I stayed in that city. That city is called Tiberias. So Jesus is actually preaching uh, in a valley here, speaking up on top of a, of a hill. And the, and the hill, you, you might be aware that it's naturally has very, very good acoustics. So good that you could preach to thousands of people uh, without any amplification. And uh, everyone would be able to hear you very clearly. And Jesus is preaching in this valley. And the crowd... Uh, is say if I'm at the bottom of the valley, you guys are up on the hill, Tiberius is, is over Jesus' shoulder across the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. And so Tiberius is that city on a hill. So God, Jesus is giving a, a very clear, um, painting a very clear physical picture here that, that as believers we should be a light on a hill. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I find the Sermon on the Mount quite challenging. Uh, For those of you who've heard any number of my sermons, uh, I'm either probably speaking about Revelation and the second coming of Jesus, which is the greatest event ever, or grace and love. I'm pretty fluffy. I really am. Mostly because I am totally and utterly in love with Jesus and he has totally changed my life forever at every age and in every circumstance. His love is my guiding light and my intimacy that I have shared with his Holy Spirit, with God the Father through Jesus Christ is exactly how I live every single moment of my life, not just on the weekends, but in all situations and in every circumstance. And so his love and his grace is often what I want to talk about. But this, this Sermon on the Mount challenges me because Jesus isn't as fluffy as I am. He's actually quite harsh in some of parts of the sermon. It's like when I read it, I personally get, wow, that hurt. But, oh, are you serious, Jesus? That's, that's hardcore. Like, calm down. You're meant, to be, you're meant to be grace and love like me. But this, this part here, he, he says, I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. And that part challenges me because how do we be salt and light, particularly in this current society where a lot of the time we're told to make sure that your salt and light is kept private and not public. When we live in a secularist, pluralistic society, in other words, where uh, the way that society operates is determined to be free from any spiritual beliefs and any spiritual belief is A-OK, How do you um, adhere to your teacher and your master and your Lord saying, I want you to be salt and light because this is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? How do you do that? Ravi Zacharias points out very effectively that even the nature of the proposition of Christianity is offensive because as soon as you start removing options, people start getting nervous and start getting offended. Matter of fact, Paul points out that the gospel is offensive to the Jews and it nonsense to the Greeks. And that too is quite true today. It's offensive to anybody who believes anything else because Jesus is exclusive. He is the only way. 
There is no other way. There is no other spiritual enlightenment. There is only one truth, and his name is Jesus Christ. That becomes offensive to anyone who believes anything else. And so naturally, we, in our sense of politeness and our sense of modicum in today's contemporary society, we look at the calendar and we're told it's 2015 and you should keep your voice quiet. But yet I read the scripture and I'm told to be salt and light. So how do you do that? Well, in order to effectively highlight, I think probably the best place we could look would be the book of Daniel. So we're going to shoot over to Daniel 1 because there's some similarities between uh, the kingdom and the society in which Daniel and his friends lived in and the modern contemporary society that we live in. And so I want to draw some parallels and and show you some things that Daniel and his mates went through and and we'll apply them to today and, and we'll have a bit of fun while we discuss Uh, some of these uh, things. There's there's a lot of similarities. Let's uh, quickly read in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1. This is Daniel writing this, and he's describing this about his own beginning here. He said, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, looking like Tim Hughes, possessing knowledge and... Oh, sorry, it doesn't say that. And quick to understand who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, and the king appointed for them the daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them. Everyone say university degree. So that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them better as Daniel... Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are Daniel and his mates, and, and these are the same guys who went into the fiery furnace. These are the same guys that, uh, that saw the finger writing on the wall for Belshazzar. It's the same, same guys who uh, Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. Th- these are the same boys. Now, I want to notice a couple of things here. First of all, uh, we're talking about a Babylonian kingdom. From Right from the book of Genesis all the way through to Revelation, Babylon, Babylon uh, can, can fairly repetitively be represented as the world's system. Right there at the beginning in the Tower of Babel, it was essentially the alternate system to the way God wanted to do things. God wanted to do things a certain way. Uh, The people of Babel uh, wanted to do things another way. And that same area, Babel or Babylon, has uh, consistently wanted to do things alternatively to God. Even to this day, uh, that region would be known as Iraq. And uh, you still see uh, systems um, of ideologies and religions emanating from Iraq that want to be totally opposite to the way that God wants to run things. The latest of these is ISIS. That originated in the same area where the Assyrians have come from, which use the same tactics that ISIS used, which is terror. It's nothing new. It's the same tactics that Satan has been using for thousands of years. The Assyrians would try to be so brutal to their enemies that their enemies would get scared to death and just submit, which is essentially the same tactic that terror is today. They're being so horrific in an effort to essentially make the West 
and all other ideologies that oppose them to submit without a fight. Same system, same opposition. And right through to the end of Revelation, Babylon is set up as a different way of thinking, a different way of acting, a different way of doing life than what God wants to do and God has instructed us to do. And so Daniel and his friends are in a system and the king systematically sets out a way to stop these boys thinking the way that they've been trained to think and start thinking in a Babylonian way. The first thing that they do is they get them to think and act like Babylonians by changing their language, by changing the way that they think, by the way that they're educated and in the systems and the way that they operate their life. In other words, they want them to think and act Babylonian and stop thinking and acting like followers of God. That same tactic is used today, and the number one perpetrator of that tactic is modern media. It is systematically geared at aiming at particularly the 18 to 35-year-old demographic and changing the way they think. Why? Because the Babylonians knew What companies and governments know today, that if you change a young person's thinking, you can change the future operations of how a nation will act. What they call it officially is co-orientation. I'm being serious, that is a PR tactic of what they try to do. PR practitioners, and, and Pastor Kay is from a communications background herself, she can vouch for this. It's a, what they want to do is they want to sway public opinion, but there's a process in how you do that. If I want to get you all thinking the same thing, what I first need to do is getting one of you thinking the same thing. And if you're seeing a a topic or a situation from this perspective, I need to co-orientate your perspective over to my perspective. And the way I do that is through congruence so that we're both and everyone in this whole room is seeing the same way. And if I can get everyone seeing the situation from the same perspective and agreeing on the same challenge, I now have swayed all of public opinion and we're all thinking the same way. Media is how they do that. And and in in really innocent ways, it's not always always evil. If If I want you to think that my product is good, I need the public opinion to agree with me that my, public, that my product is good. That's ba- it's basic advertising and basic communications, but when it's put in a systematic effort across a whole generation, who do they target at? 18-year-olds, all the way through, and younger for that matter. But I see this in the church because we have a great Sunday school system. So many of us Christians come and grow up through Sunday school. That's where most of our salvations are met is in, is in Sunday school. And then great youth programs where they consolidate those beliefs and they grow up in the training of God. And all of a sudden they hit university age and they're met with a different way of thinking, a different way of acting, a different worldview. And all of a sudden they're questioning it and that's where the exit door is happening. Why? Because they're thinking and acting like the way of the world instead of thinking and acting like the way God has taught them to. It's the same tactic just a couple of millennia later. The second tactic, and excuse me for moving quickly, is they want to be in captivity but satisfy them with delicacies. This is Western society. We are in captivity in many respects. There's so many people in our communities and in our families that are in captivity, but that's okay because we're being satisfied by delicacies and consumerism. We've got full bellies and entertained minds, so why would we question when we are in our chains? Same tactic. 
a friend of mine is a missionary to North Korea. And I said to her, man, I pray so much for the North Korean Christians. You know, persecuted church is something that's heavy on my heart, and I do spend time. And I would encourage you to all pray for the worldwide church, uh, as, as a lot of it is persecuted. And North Korea is one of the major hotspots for Christian persecution. And a friend of the family is a missionary in North Korea at the invitation of North Korea government, which just blows your mind as such an open door from God. And I uh, was talking about how we pray for the persecuted church. And she was saying, you know what, it's so beautiful because the North Korean Christians, they pray for the West. Because they don't have a choice. They have to rely on God. They have to rely on Jesus. If it's not Jesus, it's nothing. Whereas the West, if, if God doesn't come through, you've got social security. You've got the government. You've got health care. You don't need to fully rely on God. And that ends up breeding a lazy Christianity. And we pray for the Western Christians that they don't get lazy and they stay close to God. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind? But it's the same tactic. Christians kept captive. Non-Christians kept captive because they got full bellies, entertained minds by the delicacies of Babylon's system. The third way that they do it is that, so that they serve in the king's palace. They train these boys, they take them out, they go to the conquered cities, they take them out of their environment, take them into Babylon, retrain them, educate them, give a university degree, change the way they talk, and then get them to serve in the king's palace instead of serving in the kingdom of God. And that's another area that we need to really have a look at, is the, is the ways that I've been trained, the gifts that I've been given, the provision and the resource that I've been blessed with, both by just living in a country like Australia and also by the gifts that God has given me. Am I serving in the normal kingdom of this society that I live in, or am I seeking first the kingdom of God and giving all my time, effort, and resource into that kingdom? Which kingdom are you serving in? Is it the system of the world? Are we constantly chasing things that are in a different way of thinking? Or are we constantly chasing what is valued, what is highly treasured, what is, what is valued in the kingdom of God? Is that where we are investing our treasure? Which kingdom do we want to serve? Which kingdom do we want to invest in? Is it God's kingdom and God's way of doing things? Or is it the Babylonian system? And so these three boys are faced with the same environment and the same society that in many ways we are faced with today. How do you be salt and light in an environment and a kingdom that serves a multiplicity of gods and worldviews, that is only focused on consumerism and that everything is being given to you, you've got full bellies and entertained minds and you're being told not to think the way that you know is right. And yet these three boys, and Daniel, particularly Daniel, changed the mind of not one king, not two kings, but three different kings ended up leaving the way they think and serving God. How did he do it? How did he become salt and light to the Babylonian kings and the Persian and the Assyrian kings? This is what I want to talk about tonight. It's a genuine question I have. I mean, I don't have 100% of the answer, but I think it's something we need to wrestle with in modern society. It's something we need to constantly talk about because how do we take what is naturally an offensive proposition and bring it in love to those who we are trying to seek and, and save those who are lost? How do we do it? And so I'm talking about tonight 
about loving on purpose. Here's three really quick ways of overcoming those three strategies. They're not new strategies. Satan's been using them. The enemy's been using them for millennia. Here's three quick ways. First of all, when, when we're being told to think differently, we need to renew our mind with this. That's how we renew our mind. That's how we wash our mind. The Bible says to wash the washing of the Word. In other words, the more you read about the thoughts and the heartbeat of God, the more it just washes you, washes over you, washes over your mind, washes over your heart. Second of all, the seeking intimacy is something that Daniel and these boys did in the captivity. They, instead of being satisfied with the delicacies, they said, no, king, actually you can keep your meat and your wine, just give us some fruit and some vegetables, and we are going to serve the way that we know that God has told us to eat, and we're going to be satisfied through the intimacy of our God. Our God will sustain us, and that is another tactic that we can use today. Instead of looking for the next thing that you want to constantly consume, constantly consume, constantly consume, be satisfied with the intimacy of Holy Spirit. Let Him be all that you need. Because in Him we live and we move and we have our being. There is nothing outside of Jesus or God or Holy Spirit that is worth pursuing. Everything worth pursuing is in God. The third way that we overcome that tactic is, is what I already said. Seek first the kingdom of God instead of seeking first man's kingdom. Instead of constantly chasing the next thing or the next promotion or the next achievement or I need the bigger car or keeping up with the Joneses like they say, what are we chasing to chase the kingdom of God? You know, I recently uh, see on Facebook, especially in today's climate, you see this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King come up. It says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that, and hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. That's a great quote, and 100% agree with it. Um, But the only thing is that a lot of people forget is that Dr. Martin Luther King actually died living that statement. It's a nice statement. Let's love each other. Let's not hate each other, let's love each other. But it kind of gets serious when you realize the guy who said it actually died living it. Things just got real. On the plane back, I watched Selma. Uh, I didn't understand what it was at first, and then I realized it was a story about Dr. Martin Luther King, which is what got me thinking about him. It was a great movie, actually. It took me 13 hours to watch it with two kids. I don't know if you've ever flown with two kids, but after 13 hours and the plane's coming to land in Brisbane, I finally got to the end. Great movie. But like I said, not only... Did Dr. Martin Luther King ultimately uh, die um, as, a, as a hero of the civil rights movement? But um, halfway through the, uh, the movie, this movie is about a town called Selma where they, where they uh, did some peaceful protests and it's about the story of that. It's a great movie. I'd encourage you to watch it. Uh, but one of the boys who was protesting peacefully, uh, they tried to, the state troopers tried to bust up this this protest and ended up chasing them and, and uh, I'm sure this, this part of the story, I don't know if it's fictional or real, but in, in, in the movie, uh, they chased this boy and they ended up, after a scuffle, he ended up losing his life after protesting peacefully. He too lost his life and, and Dr. King uh, was in the hospital uh, with his dad and, and he said something to his dad and it, it just hit me straight away and, and I don't know if this is historically accurate, I'm probably guessing that it's not. But the truth of it is real for me. He's standing in the hospital with his dad. 
And he says, there are no words to soothe you, Mr. Lee. There are no words. But I can tell you, God was the first to cry for your boy. God was the first to cry. And once again, I don't know if Dr. King said that or not verbatim, but you know what? It's true. If that happened, I really believe that that represents the heartbeat of God. Because often we can question, well, in our world, when bad things happen and evil seems like it's winning, where is God is, a, is often a question. Matter of fact, it was even printed on the front page of the New York Times the other day. But let me assure you that in those situations, God is the first to cry. I believe that. That's why he decided to send his son. Because when Adam and Eve fell, God was the first to notice. And he said, where are you, Adam? That was his question. Adam, where are you? You were there. You were right next to me. We were one. And where are you, Adam? He was the first to notice. He was the first to cry. And ever since then, as long as evil has impacted the lives and hearts and minds of men, whether through natural circumstances or through the consequences of our own choices, it is still God's heartbeat to focus in on the fact that He has a heart for humanity and not against it. And so when He's asking us to be salt and light in the world, it isn't because he wants to be nasty and make us think the way he thinks just because. It's because his heart is for humanity. What does salt do? Salt preserves. Salt is a natural preservative, particularly in the way and the context of what Jesus is using it in that culture. It was used to preserve and to prevent decay. Do you know we are meant to prevent decay in our society? That's your role. Jesus said it. I want you to prevent the breakdown of society. You're not meant to keep quiet when things are coming against our community, when things are coming against our families, when there are changes that are being made right across the board in how we operate as a society. We are not meant to be voiceless. We are meant to be salt that prevents decay. Matter of fact, I I firmly believe, there are different interpretations, but I firmly believe that the Antichrist and evil cannot even reign Antichrist cannot be revealed as long as the church is here. Because the church and the Holy Spirit in the church is what holds back what Paul calls the restrainer. Paul calls it the restrainer. What's the restrainer? There's a couple of different interpretations. Here's the one that I, that I have uh, agreed with, and that is it's the Holy Spirit in the church. As long as the Holy Spirit in the church is on the planet, the Antichrist cannot even get a big enough foothold to let evil reign on this planet. Why? Because we are the salt That prevents decay. But we are also the light. We are the light in our community. Not only do we prevent decay, but we also shine in our families, in our marriages, in our community, and in our nation. John said that light entered the world and the darkness comprehended it not. That that phrase, to sum it up in a real layman's terms, means that the darkness cannot fight light. The darkness cannot overcome light. We are meant to be that light that infiltrates every dark area of our nation and our community. One of the cool things about the subjects or the areas that I studied at university was we got to watch a lot of ads, which was fun. The cool ads, though, not like carpet court and stuff, like cool ads. 
and there really are some cool ads, a lot of Super Bowl ads, you know, we watch all them, and we study what works and what doesn't, and there's this one ad that I absolutely love, and I'm going to play it for you tonight, um, so if the guys want to get it ready, uh, this, is, this is a Super Bowl ad, I think, from probably 2013. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, and replenish the self-feeder, and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. Okay, for starters, who wants to buy a Dodge Ram now? <laughs> Man, I love Dodge Rams, all right? We went on a road trip in Texas, and um, Bonnie surprised me by, by up upgrading the car that we hired to a Dodge Ram, and so I was able to drive a Dodge Ram around Texas. It was amazing. I love Dodge Rams. It was, a, it was, yeah, it was cool. And I love that ad, you know, so God made a farmer. And I, I, think, I think there's a lot of truth in that, but the way I see it is I, I often see the church in that ad. See, because how do you be salt and light? Well, I, I think the answer is you've got to love on purpose. It's not just being a nice guy. It's not just being a nice gal. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, being polite and nice and then hopefully just through your niceness, the Holy Spirit just falls on people and they want to just run to the altar and dedicate their life to Jesus. I, you know, hopefully that happens, but I highly doubt it. Often I think there's a lot of action involved in being salt and light. And I think a lot of that love has to be more than just a, a passive sitting at home and keeping your mouth shut, but it's an actual active role that the church is to play. And it's called loving on purpose. 
I think that ad could, could easily be written about the church, about, you know, one of the theological concepts that just escapes me all the time. I mean, uh, like, I, I love and I can grasp and I can understand a lot about the love of God and about the grace of God and about glorification, about salvation, about justification, sanctification. I can wrap my mind around most of that fairly easily. They're complicated subjects at times, but they, they, they make sense. But one thing that doesn't quite make sense and what staggers me time and time again is why an all-powerful God, bigger than the universe, would want to partner with me to fulfill His purpose. God is on a mission and He chose broken clay vessels like you and me to partner with to complete that mission. And that that thought just blows my mind. And so when I think about being salt and light, I think how God saw that He needed the gospel carried to all ends of the earth. So God made His church. He needed someone to get up real early in the morning and stay up late at night being and praying vigilantly for people. So God made His church. He needed widows and orphans looked after. He needed to make sure that poverty wouldn't run rampant around the world without it being noticed and taken care of. So God made His church. He noticed that there were tribes in the deepest, darkest parts of the world that people would have to traverse and, uh, and often fight diseases like malaria and other uh, jungle diseases and often lose their health or even their life. So God made His church. He saw that there was injustices in the world and He needed heroes to stand up and say, this is not the way that we should be thinking and acting. We should be thinking and acting like the way that God wants us to. So God made His church. And so how do we be salt and light? Well, it's we love on purpose, both corporately, but also individually. What's your purpose? What's your purpose in the kingdom of God that God made you, created you, and decided to partner with you to achieve? You've got a role to play. You've got a role to play, both individually and corporately. And just sitting back and being a nice guy and hoping that people notice how nice you are and dedicate their life to Jesus is, I would submit to you, not entirely effective and probably not what Jesus is after. Because God made His church to serve a purpose. There's a famous AFL final in the, in the 70s where Ron Barassi was the coach and, and, he, and he did a famous halftime speech and, and the, his team were behind at the halftime and he said to his team, he said, do something, just do something, do anything. Make sure you catch the ball, kick the ball, be there, chase the ball, make sure you tackle somebody, participate, get in there, get your head in the game and just do something, do anything so that when we lift the trophy, you can say, I was a part of that. And once again, I think we can take that and apply it to the church because the victory is ours through Christ Jesus. And when the day He comes back and He reigns and rules over this whole country, we can say, I was a part of that. I was a part of that. I just, I did something. I didn't sit back. I loved on purpose. Why don't we close our eyes and and stand right now?